0: Polygamy, uh, multiple spouses, or more accurately, polygyny, uh, multiple wives can be a hot topic among people who are new to reading the Hebrew scriptures. And there's this unfortunate tendency with people who do not read deeply into the text or into the first century writings, and particularly what Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, has to say about it, to somehow prop up multiple wives as some sort of biblical ideal. So today we're just going to, you know, delve, well, not deeply, but sort of deeply, deeper into what scripture does and does not say about multiple wives, because nothing said about multiple husbands as it was illegal in the ancient world, uh, in almost all cultures. Patriarchy doesn't look positively on competition for men, okay? Only women. Um, Is this portrayed positively as some claim or negatively? Um, What were the historical reasons for polygyny in the ancient Near East and elsewhere? What do demographics and Genesis 2 and 3 teach us about the original intent? What does Yeshua teach us about the original intent? What do we see typified in polygynous families in the Bible? How does Leviticus talk about this phenomenon? We've got lots to cover today. Anyway... Hello, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and <clears throat> excuse me. Welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com if you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And so right now we're taking kind of a break. I don't know if this is going to be the second or the first um break episode Uh between Mark 12 and mark 13 i'm getting some things together it's a lot more complex to teach that stuff and i've been having some requests for a while and this is one of them where um i had a, another teacher ask me to cover this um and along with some other issues that um, other people have brought up but uh so anyway we're just having a diversion here from the gospel of mark it won't it Be a month at most, maybe two weeks. (laughs) We'll see. Now, oddly enough, I'm going to begin at the end with the words of Yeshua and Paul. And then we will go back to the beginning. I am of the belief that our Messiah is the ultimate and absolute interpreter of the Hebrew scriptures and that everyone else is just giving interesting opinions. So there. In Mark 10, which we covered not so long ago, Yeshua is talking about divorce and the allowances of Moses. And it's truly difficult to understand Torah without also understanding the concept of allowances. And it's how a lot of people in like the Hebrew Roots Movement get themselves into trouble when they focus so much on the Torah and not on Yeshua's clarifications about it. When Yeshua is asked if a man should be able to divorce his wife, Yeshua does not give them permission. They are asking what they are allowed to do, and Yeshua takes them back to the beginning to show them what they are supposed to do. Um, he tells them point blank that Moses, far from commanding divorce, made an allowance because of their hardness of heart. And there's this huge difference between the two. This is why a legalistic reading of the law will often lead us into actually unrighteousness. If we're only looking at it in order to see what we can get away with doing to other people, which is exactly what men were doing in the first century. The House of Hillel Pharisees had a ruling that they enjoyed living by called Any Cause Divorce. And instead of only being allowed to divorce their wives for gross indecency, as dictated in the Torah, they had expanded that to include the burning of meals and just plain old getting older. In fact, they would even punish wives they uh, could not afford to divorce. You know, and hence they would have to return the dowry because their wives hadn't committed adultery, which would forfeit the dowry. Um, they did this by, you know, taking a younger second wife. The Essenes had fits over them doing this. And, um, and also about marrying their nieces because that wasn't specifically mentioned as being forbidden in Leviticus 18, which is gross. Okay. You see what people do when they search the scriptures for what they are allowed to do to other people, supposedly? But in Yeshua's answer to their question, he smacks them down hard for polygyny when we know the first century context and who his audience was and what they were doing. Uh, And Jesus said to them, this is in Mark 10 again, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. And of course, this is ESV as usual. forgot to mention before. One wife. They are no longer two, but one. Not three, but one. The word for man here is the generic Greek word meaning human being. If it was just referring to men, as the Pharisees were when they asked the question, he could have responded with Andrei, which is where we get the name Andrew. But Yeshua didn't go there. He used a generic Greek for human. No human. Neither male nor female is to come between a married couple. To do so is adultery. And so right here, Yeshua is very slyly calling the Pharisees onto the carpet for polygyny being another form of adultery. It simply was not that way in the beginning, and that is always where Yeshua sends us in order to find what God wants from us. And specifically, especially in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. You know, so often he says something like, you have heard it was said to those of old, referring to the Torah commandments. Okay. But then he'll jump in with, but I say to you. And sometimes he's flat out saying that the commandments are nice, but they were made to contain sin, to, um, to limit sin not to define a righteous life. You know, we know that slavery is like evil now post-cross, you know, even though it took a long time for us to get here. And even though most of the slavery might have been debt slaves, it wasn't all that way. And you could beat a slave to death and go unpunished just as long as they didn't die within 2 days because they were your property, I think that's Exodus 22. I got to put in a citation on that. I 22 or 23. We know that forcibly taking war brides is evil because we live in a post-cross world. Moses made allowances. Yeshua outright says so. And Yeshua calls us to a much higher standard of justice and righteousness than Moses ever could have. What about the epistles? In First Timothy 3, overseers and deacons are both commanded to be the husband of only one wife. And in Titus 1, elders are held to the exact same standards. So obviously when Paul was setting up new congregation, he was banning polygynists from leadership. Not from the congregation, from leadership. Now a huge reason for this is... They were commanded to have orderly households, and as we will see throughout Scripture, that is not the case when there is more than one wife in the home, and especially children of more than one wife. Polygynists are not celebrated in Scripture, at least not for that. Their home lives are a mess, and oftentimes they themselves are objectionable and portrayed badly for other reasons, and let's just go through that. Starting at almost the beginning, So Lamech, the great-great-grandson of Cain, a murderer and the first person in Scripture to be described as having more than one wife. And you know, this guy was quite the piece of work, claiming that anyone who tried to kill him for killing the young man who just wounded him was going to get it bad. Seventy-seven-fold. Lamech depended on God's protection of Cain in order to justify this. Lamech was the very first person in Scripture who was really described as just an all-around bad, entitled dude. Very entitled in every aspect of his life that we know about, and feeling as though the rules of decency obviously didn't apply to him, and that he could kill people over slights without penalty. Now, our second polygynous is debatable. It's Abraham. And a lot of this material you can find fleshed out more in my book, Context for Adult Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relations in the Bible. I, I take on all the really horrible things. We go, what the heck is going on? Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Now, Hagar, being a concubine, wasn't a full-on wife. And this is terrible, but in the ancient world, women were seen as incubators. The man deposits his seed in the fertile soil of the wife, and nine months later, voila, mini me for daddy. But the idea of a woman having an A? And that the baby's genetically hers as well? Well, that wouldn't have made any sense to them. No, the baby was the father's property as it grew from his seed. And no matter how fond Abraham was of Sarah, and he must have loved her very much for sticking with her in a world where a woman was She needed to produce within two years, or she could be discarded as damaged goods. You know, he would have seen his kids just as many versions of himself. Sarah and Hagar were incubators in the birthing process. The Bible doesn't teach science, folks, so it speaks in terms, you know, in those terms when we know what to look for, okay? in the terms of what they understood, all right? Which is why the whole seed of the woman thing in Genesis 3 didn't make an ounce of sense to them. Women, they thought, didn't have seed. Only men. Of course, we know differently. Sarah was in within her rights in the ancient Near Eastern world to present her husband with a surrogate incubator for his baby. And that's why the child would be hers. Because she thought it was only her husband's child anyway, as far as they believed. Didn't matter, you know, where it came out of. So she had the legal right to force Hagar into this situation, which actually would have been a step up socially for Hagar anyway. And not, I'm I'm not saying it's right. You know, it's just this is how they looked at it. Um, And Abraham wanted a son, so it wasn't like he was going to refuse her. Sarah needed a son just as badly as did Abraham. Someone to care for her once Abraham died. So... Was Abraham a polygynist? No, not really. He only ever had in his eyes one wife at a time, plus an incubator on the side. And since Hagar never had another child, I'm thinking that after she was pregnant, that was it. Um, And I know this sounds offensive, and it is offensive. (laughs) So let's just be honest, it's offensive. But this is contextually how they would have looked at the situation. But even though there weren't two wives, Hagar was behaving as though she was a wife. And we all know how horribly this worked out when she began acting as Sarah's rival instead of as her slave. There's nothing even suggesting that Abraham was treating her as a second wife. However, carrying the heir to the clan was a big, huge deal. And it made Hagar somewhat of a celebrity in the group. Of course, we all know what happened. The family ended up splintered apart, and Hagar and Ishmael were cast out and almost died. I mean, really, Abraham? Really? A water skin and some bread? Not cool there, dude. And the the two families were at odds through all of Scripture. Not a good starting point. So, fortunately, all this drama skipped a generation, and we were instead treated to the problem of having favorite children, which is also a recurring problem theme. But Jacob, he didn't go into life wanting more than one wife, but was tricked into it, and it was a disaster. His brother Esau, on the other hand, married multiple women on purpose, women who made his mother's life a living hell. Now Jacob, of course, only wanted Rachel, but her father played a game with ancient Near Eastern inheritance rights and probably tricked Jacob into marrying Leah so that he could be disinherited. You see, Laban doesn't seem to have any sons when Jacob shows up, only the girls. Because of this, Laban might have been in the market for an endogamous adoption, which is the adoption of another clan member as a son slash son-in-law. Marrying him to Rachel gave Laban a male heir. But later in the story, we see Laban suddenly having sons. So something changed over the course of the, you know, 21 years that Jacob remained with Laban, um, where we see no sons. And then all of a sudden, he has sons old enough to be working with the flocks. Now, there's a law in the books, and I talk about this in my book, where a stipulation of son-in-law inheritance rights would be invalidated if the son took a second wife and we actually see laban make reference to this during their very last meeting where he forbids jacob to take any wives other than his daughters so if laban has sons had sons during that uh, initial 7 years of jacob working for him then he if he could force jacob into a polygynous situation Jacob would not inherit along with them. Only Laban's biological sons would inherit. So Laban makes the switch. Jacob consummates the marriage and then is forced by his love for Rachel to become a polygamist when all he initially wanted was Rachel. He loses the inheritance and Laban gets what he wants. Of course, Bilhah and Zilpah were added not as wives, but as concubines due to barrenness in the case of Rachel, and secondary infertility in the case of Leah. And both wives were within their rights to demand more children. And of course, Jacob doesn't seem to complain about it. He liked, in rabbinic legend, okay, he liked Bilhah so much that after Rachel's death, she became his preferred sleeping partner. That's why they think Reuben seduced her. Okay, so that Jacob wouldn't sleep with her anymore. Now, the wording is very precise, and Bilhah and Zilpah are not ever referred to as the wives of Jacob when the wives are singled out and addressed. They're just referred to as women. And when Bilhah and Zilpah have children, they belong to Rachel and Leah. If they were wives, then the children would be credited to them. And yes, it is a step up from just being a slave, but it's a far cry from the respect a wife would be due within the clan. What is the immediate fruit of these unions? I mean, besides a whole mess of kids. Strife between the sisters as love turns to bitter rivalry. Leah even accusing Rachel of stealing her husband. When Jacob goes making trouble for his brothers, he singles out the children of Bilhah and Zilpah, so evidently there is a hierarchy that even the kids are painfully aware of, and you know how kids are. In addition, the children of Rachel are given super priority and favoritism over the others, even over the firstborn. As a result, hatred grows amongst all the brothers, and Joseph is betrayed and sold into slavery in Egypt. Just as the problems with Hagar and Sarah and Abraham, this is all directly attributable to multiple women being forced into a rivalry situation, and perhaps this is why Joseph only had one wife. Now, during the time of the judges, we have Gideon, who had 70 sons and many wives. Well, with that many kids, one would certainly hope he had more than one wife. He also had a concubine who bore him a son, and that son, Abimelech, killed all of his brothers so he could rule over the residence of Shechem himself. And we're going to see this theme repeated again with the sons of David. Sons of different mothers in the Bible tend not to be terribly loyal to one another. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the closest bond is not between husband and wife, or father and son, but between mother and son, followed by brother and sister. Which makes a whole lot of this make a whole lot more sense. Oftentimes these guys were actually striving with one another for their mother's honor. So rivalry is all about undermining your opponent and trying to come out on top. Like with Leia and Rachel and the dialogues whenever a new baby would or would not be born. Let's look at what the Bible says about the rivalry issue. This is Leviticus eighteen eighteen, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And First Samuel one six. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Sophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah the son of Jehoram. Jer- Jeroham, son of Eliu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other is Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it went on year by year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her. Yeah, you can already tell I don't like what he says. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Oh, jeez. As a barren woman, I just want to smack him. And can I just go and say most clueless man of all time? No, honey, you really aren't better than ten sons. Jeez, what kind of an idiot are you? I have this other woman of yours tormenting me, but hey, I'm married to you. It just makes it all so thrilling and happy. As Bugs Bunny would say, What a maroon! But look at Leviticus 18.18. Moses is flat out saying that multiple wives were rivals. Hey, just like multiple husbands would be. There's a reason that's always illegal in patriarchal cultures, because men are jealous just like women are, and it isn't any less of a problem. Except we're less likely to kill over it. Now here's one thing. Okay, if Moses is acknowledging that multiple wives are rivals, what should that communicate to us? The word rival is not a positive word. No one should have a rival in their home or even in their life. It's cruel and dehumanizing. A woman with a rival is a woman who can have no peace, just like a man would feel the same way. And the saddest example of this is between Rachel and Leah, sisters whose relationship should never have been broken up by rivalry. Ah, man! You know we gotta look at these things as being about real people and not just stories we read past. Gotta picture ourselves within the biblical narrative, and we've gotta really pay close attention to the culture and the language. This was a horrible thing. That Laban, you know, everybody says, oh, you know what Laban did to Jacob was so horrible. No, what he did to his daughters was horrifying. And and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, the rivalry in childbearing that existed between the two of them that was just brutal. So I'll be back in a few minutes. back to the second half of character and context for this week and we're talking about is polygamy polygyny multiple wives a good thing or a bad thing and so we're seeing what scripture has to say about and so far sorry guys it ain't positive and so we're gonna go to um we're talking about Leah and rachel and how polygyny destroyed their relationship with one another um, and we're going to go to Genesis 29 and 30 and read about the childbirth wars, um, time that should have been incredibly joyous um, for both of them, but it turned into something horrifying because of what Leviticus 18, 18 calls the rivalry between wives. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, I know a lot of times people um side with Rachel over Leah or Leah over Rachel and I see them as just pawns in this horrifying game and they were both really wronged. I don't side with either one. Um when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It wasn't Rachel's fault either. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and she ceased bearing. Let's just stop right there. Jeez, four sons. And with every son, she's like begging and hoping for her husband's regard. But instead, he prefers her sister. It says here that she's hated, which must have been what it felt like to know she had been used as part of a ruse, and can you even begin to imagine her agony? And her rival, the other woman, was her own sister. Now, legendary materials say they were twins, but at the very least, Rachel was the younger sister. The situation is a nightmare for Leah, who obviously gives up on Jacob loving her before the birth of Judah, but it isn't a picnic for Rachel either, because... Although Rachel is a rival for Jacob's affection, Leah has given birth to four sons, making Rachel nothing in the eyes of other women and insecure in her marriage. Starting chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel has said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With many wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Wrestled with my sister. Jeez. Now being a barren woman myself, I know what it is to feel like I'm going to die without a child. I mean, I even told God in January of 2000, after I lost our third baby that I was going to die, and I meant it. And Jacob here, he's not the most sympathetic figure in the Bible on so many levels. Rachel, desperate as Sarah ever was, gives Jacob her young, probably about 13 or 14 years old, handmaid. And when Bilhah gives birth, Rachel's words really reveal the oppressive and adversarial nature of having to deal with other wives. God has judged me. And the unspoken thing is that the judgment would be with regard to this rivalry with her sister, and she feels vindicated now. And with the birth of Naphtali, she speaks of wrestling with her sister. This is a horrifying indictment on polygyny. If even the closest of women can have their loving relationship destroyed over it, this is not how either family or marriage should be for anyone. Going back to the text, verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. And she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. They were supposed to be um, for uh fertility, okay? Um, and he brought them to his mother Leah. Then L- Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So much for the kids all belonging to all of the mothers, right? That's one of the that's one of the things out there that they say. But she said to her, Is it a small matter to you that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes too? And Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And I mean, come on, how humiliating to have to barter with your rival in order to sleep with your own husband. And none of this is Leah's fault. She was a pawn in a ruthless patriarchal culture and her father used her in order to rob Jacob. This is just wrong. When we look, at men and women, in the beginning, in the harmony... And the one-on-one nature of the relationship, this is just all the more tragic. 19. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. But six sons and a daughter mean little to Jacob, who still does not regard her and seemingly never will. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So even having the births through Bilhah was not enough to cause Rachel not to feel this shame and rivalry. Look, when you have a rival, no amount of victories enough. Rivals are there to be conquered and defeated, not just be fought with endlessly like a tennis match. But surely, even though things were a mess for Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and his clan and Hannah and her family, surely things got better with the monarchy. I mean, David is like one of the stars of the Bible. Surely he could handle polygyny like a champ with no infighting. I mean, he was the king. Well, actually, with him, it was even worse. And he wasn't tricked into it like Jacob was. David took multiple wives for various reasons. Political alliances being just one of them, okay? And really you have four overt reasons for polygyny in the Bible other than being tricked. And we aren't going to, you know, we aren't going to count it as a unique situation, okay? Or we are going to count that as a unique situation. We're just not going to count that In our, never mind. Okay, so one, the need for heirs. These are the reasons for polygyny we see in the culture of the Bible. And it's not the culture of the Bible. It's the culture the Bible was written to and it describes. They needed help. Okay, so one, the need for heirs because people without heirs were in deep doo-doo in the ancient world. Without a younger generation, you were vulnerable in every way. As you grew older, there was no one to protect you from the elements, care for the land and livestock, or defend you if you were attacked by marauders or if your slaves rebelled. Even worse than all that was the idea of having your body go unburied and ending up as like dust underneath the feet of others. This was seriously terrifying for ancient people And we have uh, no indication from the Bible that they had any concept of eternal life at this early date. I mean, David didn't. Now, for most people, for ancient people, sorry, the only immortality was through being remembered, which is why Absalom built a memorial to himself. Obviously, none of these are any sort of concern in modern times. Two, political alliances... This was the main reason that kings gathered wives, to shore up political alliances with neighboring countries. These were princesses bred for this duty, and the race was always on to produce the first heir, or maybe the favorite heir, so that they could be uh, queen mother once their husband died. Now, apart from the wealth, you know... You know, it's kind of a miserable sort of life, scheming and competing for affection, um, and supremacy. Now, Saul, David, and Solomon all took political wives. All right. Solomon's very first wife, wife allied Israel with Egypt because she was the daughter of Pharaoh. Rehoboam, Solomon's heir, his mother was an Ammonite, which was not cool. Gee, wonder why the kingdom split. Oh, a lot of that was Solomon's fault. I I digress. Three, lust. Bathsheba was the one wife of David whom we know was the victim of his lust. The text in Hebrew and in historical context is clear that she was innocent and that David was the aggressor and even that he raped her, which is why she was likened to a little defenseless, defenseless ewe lamb in Nathan's parable. The problem with power is that it makes even good men drunk with it, and likely, when he had seized her and brought her over to the palace, she couldn't conceive of getting out of there alive if she said no to him. He held all the cards. And since he would murdered her husband to cover everything up later, maybe she would be right to just be happy to get out of there alive. Now, power changed, David. All right? Not for the better. And Solomon with his thousand wives and concubines? There weren't enough countries to be allied with to justify that many alliances, and he sure didn't need that many heirs. 4. Patriarchal authority and honor. Patriarchy breeds self-indulgence. It just does. A man feels more like a man if he has more of what makes man feel like a man, and women are always at the top of that list. Even if it isn't about lust, it's about possessions, authority, and power over others. And no one is easier to wield authority over in the ancient world than women. Except children. Okay. Now, a man who could gather beautiful and well-positioned women around him would be granted a lot of honor for doing so. And honor slash reputation was everything in that world. And if you've read my Context for Kids curriculum, book number one, you know about that. Most of the people who read it are adults, I think. Now, in the modern world, we see these latter two reasons for plural marriages. Patriarchal authority and honor and lust. You know, plus one other. But that one tends to get blended in with the lust and patriarchy, and that's religion. Now, where I live, we have what are called black Mormons. And they're Mormons. They're not actually black. They're... That's what, just what they're called. And there are Mormons who practice polygyny, even though the church outlawed it so that Utah could become a state back in 1896. Polygyny is very much a thing here, but don't think of Sister Wives or Big Love. That is fictional. Yeah, reality shows like Sister Wives are largely fictional, and I have a friend who actually knows that family personally, but let's get back to the biblical record. And this time we're going to talk about David's family. David had eight wives, and of course, we already discussed the tragedy with Bathsheba. The children that came from those eight marriages were treacherous with one another. Amnon, David's firstborn, raped his half-sister Tamar. Tamar's brother Absalom, when David refused to do anything about it, killed Amnon and was banished. When Absalom returned, the bitterness was still so terrible that he launched a coup against his father, which resulted in Absalom's death. When David was close to death, his son Adonijah seized the throne forcibly and declared himself king, despite the throne being promised to Solomon. Solomon spared his life only to have him executed later because Adonijah was trying to secure a backdoor to the throne by trying to marry David's last wife, who was still a virgin. By marrying one of David's wives, he would have a claim to the throne. And so all these children of different mothers, there was no affection there, but only rivalry. And we have seen it too many times for it not to be a serious pattern of bad fruit that comes from plural marriages. And David also had concubines. That's why Absalom slept with David's concubines on the roof of the palace. That's why David never slept with them again. And, okay, I'm not saying that the people who do this are evil. I'm saying that the fruit is bad. So many times, Yeshua would just point his audience back to the beginning. There is a reason why the male-female population is about 50-50, and it isn't because Yahweh wants some men to have a ton of wives and the rest to have none. Would Yahweh really want some men to have absolutely no heirs? Well, that's what ends up happening within these plural marriage communities only way to make it work is to have a lot of single men or to expel them from the community which does often happen look at the flds community run by warren jeffs that's not the only community out there either that's just a famous one this is never you know what watch youtube videos where these women who have escaped from these compounds the stories they have to tell Now, this is never portrayed in Scripture as a righteous or beneficial way of life. The word rival gets used. And that isn't a dig at women for being too sensitive. It's just a fact. Yeshua called the men who do this adulterers. The early congregations barred these men from leadership. And so why does this happen? You know, when I read the materials put out there by these groups or individuals that promote this, they make a big deal about saying this isn't about sex. But what is it about? It's certainly not about there being no male or female in Christ because there are definite dividing lines. Women aren't granted the right to have more than one husband and the reasons given are ludicrous. Oh, people say, you won't know who the father is. What does that or anymore? Get a DNA test. Easy peasy. But no. No. There's always this double standard. Let me tell you something. If this was a righteous and good thing to do and people needed more than one spouse, there would be no double standard. Okay? Now, excuse me. My throat is so dry. Okay. In the ancient world, no man anywhere, anywhere in a patriarchal society would tolerate rivals, okay? Which is why adultery was considered to be a crime committed against another man and not against a man's wife. Okay, in other words, if, say, my husband and I were alive 3,000 years ago, I would have more than wrinkles than this, by the way, Um, but and he had relations with the neighbor's wife, Okay as far as they were concerned they wouldn't be sinning against me but against her husband because i had no authority over his body which brings me to another bit of scripture often overlooked in all this two actually all right so in mark 10:11 yeshua actually shocked his audience by pointing out that yes virginia a man really can commit adultery against his wife, with his wife as the victim. He is committing adultery not just against another man, but against his own wife. I mean, and this seems obvious now to us, but it was anything but obvious within that patriarchal culture where women truly were treated as though they were less than fully human. You think David was talking to his wives before he picked up another one? No, Like I said before, walking incubators. But it wasn't that way in the beginning, okay? And I'm not calling the Bible bad. I'm saying it describes how things were. Not always how things should have been. We have to make that differentiation, all right? Yahweh intervened in a specific culture. And he didn't make it perfect overnight. He had to start somewhere. Um, but what's the other verse I'm talking about? Here we go. First Corinthians 7. Uh, and this is... I don't know. I didn't write down the verse number. I'm going to do that in the transcript. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now this scripture gets abused. A lot. And it's all one-sided, okay? So although this scripture is misused to make women feel as though they are sex slaves and that if they don't give in to their husbands every whim, he's going to stray, it couldn't be further from the truth of what this is talking about here. And by the way, if you guys don't want us to see you as weak and pathetic and sinful, then don't pull this stuff. We know that single guys are expected to be celibate as are divorced and widowed men. They don't all go out raping women and committing fornication just because their every desire isn't being met. So you husbands, seriously, put on your big girl panties, not literally. Not literally. And understand that your wife isn't a sex slave, and sometimes she doesn't want to or she can't, and that's okay. Her body doesn't just belong to you. Your body also belongs to her, and thus you have to hold back when she needs a break. You'll live. And also, if you can let yourself go and get older and go without makeup and jewelry, so can we. Unless you want to walk around in high heels. I sure don't. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay, but this scripture is what I call the Leah scripture. Oh, you know, if only Jacob's body had only belonged to her. If only Jacob only had his own one wife. If only Leah could have called Jacob her own husband. But she couldn't because he was also her sister's husband. If Leah had been properly um given authority... Over Jacob's body, then all the twelve tribes would have come from her, and Rachel would have married someone else, and Rachel and Leah could have loved one another as sisters. Cause probably the, the, um, affection was not, <laughs> was probably one-sided there. Um, and they don't believe the movies, okay? And they could, you know, have just both hated their snake of a father and be united against him instead without all the the rivalry, polygyny makes this impossible, and so does polyandry, plural husbands. And no thanks, you know, one is enough. I love my husband. I don't want another. Yahweh is the God of love, dignity, justice, and righteousness. Polygyny is something men did in the ancient world. Not something that was part of God's original design. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Betty and Veronica. I just made Adam sound like Archie. Okay. No one deserves to go through life with a rival. No man and no woman. We were each of us created to be loved and respected and cherished. We were each of us created to be enough for someone else. For one someone else with no rivalries among children, constantly jockeying for position. Moses made allowances for hardness of heart, but we aren't supposed to have hardness of heart. So anyway, that's the first request program <laughs> we recorded there. Anyway, um, come back at you next week, and I don't know what we're going to talk about.